This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience podcast. Cars are in at least their second major innovation, and depending upon who you talk to, maybe many more than that, the technology involved in electric vehicles is incredible. The potential within autonomous vehicles is staggering when you think about its impact on safety, reliability, efficiency, the environment. It goes on and on and on, and we're talking about those things. You know what we're not talking about very much? The roads, the roads we drive on. We have almost 4 million miles of roads in the United States, and we almost never talk about the innovation within roads, where it needs to go, what's happening now. And believe it or not, it is a compelling discussion. It's just not very sexy. Well, that's about to change because my guest this week is Allie Kelly. Allie is the executive director at The Ray, the only nonprofit organization in the world running a living laboratory on a public highway. The ideas that Allie brings to the table are interesting and we're thinking about. And Allie herself, well, you'll see. She is a force of nature. You will enjoy, I promise, this interesting, timely, and compelling conversation. So join us, please, on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data. How we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one, Allie Kelly, here the Ray. So why is connected cars important, do you think? Well, it's important because it's a new level of situational awareness mm. in our cities and on the open road. Mm -hmm. And the Ray being an interstate project, we're really interested in what kinds of safety and efficiency use cases mm -hmm. that connected car data streams can provide life to and can give us the opportunity to see have more clarity about what's going on on the roads, more situational awareness within our vehicles. Mm -hmm. um, so specifically, if vehicles are already engineered and increasingly programmed to broadcast data sets mm -hmm. from their CAN bus, mm -hmm. from their car computer or their truck computer, mm -hmm. what could those data sets tell us about what's happening on the road that we wouldn't otherwise be aware of? Mm -hmm. um, and in real time and real place. Mm -hmm. So, um, a connected car data set is really large. It's mm -hmm. you know 135, 140 different data points in a single data packet. And that data packet is being broadcast 10 times every second mm. from a connected car. Right. And the data packet is, you know, everything about that vehicle, vehicle type, vehicle mass, vehicle weight, mm -hmm. longitude, latitude, speed, heading. Mm -hmm. Um, status of transmission, status of your uh, light bar or your hazard lights, mm -hmm. status of your airbag, even right-left turn signal, mm -hmm. windshield wipers, mm -hmm. 135 or so data points packed into a single data packet being broadcast automatically 10 times per second. Now, are you broadcasting to who? To other vehicles? To the highway to the m metropolitan area who are you what's the difference between the things like in a you know an airplane there are things that a jet broadcasts to to um, air traffic control to other airplanes and there's other stuff it stores in its black box for a variety of reasons some that's downloaded and analyzed later some is just stored mm -hmm. and it's only drawn upon if they need it when you think of a connected vehicle how are you imagining this so instead of a, approaching it as to whom is it being broadcast mm -hmm. to, 
the question is really who can hear the data. Mm. So who has the ability, who has the radio to hear the data? Mm -hmm. Because the data broadcasted from connected vehicles is just being broadcasted out. Mm -hmm. And if you have a radio in another connected car or truck, or even a radio on the roadside, mm -hmm. or a radio in a red light intersection, mm -hmm then that vehicle's data set can be heard by that radio. Mm. So the broadcast itself is not proprietary. Mm -hmm. Who is managing the data is the same entity or entities that are hearing the data. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, connected cars were intended, and this is over the last two decades, mm -hmm. this isn't a brand new technology, it's mm -hmm. just now being leveraged and flexed by the auto OEMs mm -hmm. and being responded to by state DOTs and folks who are in the intelligent transport world, mm -hmm. the ITS world. Mm -hmm. But as it was originally conceived, it was conceived of as a car-to-car -car information sharing mm -hmm. within a reasonable range, mm -hmm. consider that to be a mile um, maybe as many as three miles wow. of range. That's pretty good range. Of being able to share data car to car to create situational awareness within the immediate operating area. <clears throat> right. What happens when transportation agencies like state DOT start to listen in on that data, they can create more of a regional picture mm -hmm. of what's happening how things are operating in that system and using that regional picture, that statewide picture, mm -hmm. or even a Southeast regional picture for us um, mm -hmm. down here in Georgia, mm -hmm. then you can start to manage your system more effectively by going beyond the range constraints of mm -hmm. the technology and of car-to-car -car data. Mm -hmm. And so that's where we get to V to X or vehicle to everything, mm -hmm. because then the vehicle is sharing this data, radios of various types are picking that data up, and transportation agencies are able to manage that big data into meaningful information that can be displayed in strategic locations. Mm -hmm. So you can display that meaningful information on a sign or on a community alert, or you can even return that information to the vehicles that are outside of the range, but mm -hmm. who would be interested in understanding mm -hmm. what's happening 10 miles ahead or 20 miles ahead. Yeah. So I'm gonna start with the things that I love about that, and then we'll go into the things that terrify me about that. Let's do it. Um, one of the things that breaks my heart is when you'll you know, it's sort of the big obvious ones, there's a weather event or there's some whatever. And a small incident becomes this catastrophic um, traffic accident that almost all of it could have been avoided, whether it's heavy fog or black ice or whatever that, that starts off this chain reaction that involves a few vehicles. But because the other vehicles, it's a time of day, it's a weather condition, it's some circumstance that um, had I 20 seconds, 10 seconds of more information up and down the line, um, not only could I have avoided this and, and making this a much more complicated, if not tragic thing, but also it's that much quicker we can get help to that, um, that scenario. And then that data to say, hey, you know what? On these days and these times or when these weather formations happen, this particular pass um, becomes more dangerous and there's all of that or the telemetry I've seen um, at least hypothesized 
if vehicles have good telemetry data, they can report passively back to the regional DOTs, hey, these vehicles are all bouncing on this section of road. Mm -hmm. Before somebody starts to complain in or because before there's a big hazard here, send your crews proactively, maybe even automatically out to repair, redirect traffic and repair that section of the road. And just so many ways. We, we had family come in this past weekend into Atlanta and they thought, well, we'll just hit it at Friday at one o'clock in the afternoon. We'll avoid it all. Three and a half hours later, on a regular Friday weekend, yeah. um, and so, to, but they weren't confident enough to know how do I route off of one of these big interstates that we don't want the semi trucks to route off of or the other big over the road, but maybe just regular sedan traffic could route without screwing up all the other areas. So in all those ways, I love it. The other side of it is we had Christina Chase in here last year. She's um, probably gonna be irritated that I'm using this as an analogy, but she is, uh, she's at MIT. She runs, um, in fact, she founded the sports analytics lab there. Brilliant uh, researcher. And she said, you know, one of the complexities we have with smart fabric and data analytics, at least in terms of sporting. So amateur sports like the Olympics, professional sports, who owns the data and what are they doing with the data? So if I have that biometric on me, that smart fabric or that watch or cameras that are doing data analytics, that it in many of the same ways we're talking about telemetry for vehicles that can benefit, what happens if it detects hmm, that person has a limp or there's, a, um, there's some situation in their physiological makeup that who owns the data? Does the arena, does the league, does the team, does the player, to what degree? Is that, uh, what's the consequence of that data? Is it part of the contracts? How does it, how does it work? So when I, I'm, on the one hand, I love the idea of the telemetry and I see all these benefits. I'm just wondering how, how does that, um, how can that information be applied in a way that we wouldn't approve of? And how do we make sure we build safeguards around it? Because I want the benefit without the surveillance, if that makes sense. It makes total sense. So tell us how we're solving it. Well, I'm going to rewind to the positive All right, note let's that, do that you started on. Yeah. So we're going to start positive. Actually, I'm going to end positive too. But Good. <clears throat> so you explained a couple of weather use cases. Mm -hmm that are right in the wheelhouse of interstate and highway connected vehicle data management and data ecosystem projects, including ours on the Ray Highway. So the data packet that is automatically broadcast from connected vehicles includes temperature mm -hmm. and other weather data points. Mm -hmm. And it also includes a really important data point around the car's traction with the road. Mm -hmm. And so when I combine in a smart management platform, right for managing the data and the information. When I combine the car's traction with the road with weather data points like temperature and then an additional data point like the status of my windshield wipers, active or inactive, mm -hmm. I can start to get this um, clarity and insight into black ice, mm -hmm. hydroplaning, maybe not fog, mm -hmm. but two of the weather conditions that plague a great part of this country, mm -hmm. right? Black ice and hydroplaning. Mm -hmm. And this is increasingly important because we're seeing 
more extreme weather conditions. We're mm -hmm. seeing more flash flooding mm -hmm. around the country, particularly in the southeast as we become more tropical. Mm -hmm. So understanding the nature of hydroplaning, exactly when and where it's happening, is mm -hmm. becoming more and more important for managing that situation by the transportation agency and then for situational awareness and avoidance mm -hmm. by the interstate and highway users. Yeah. And we get there with connected vehicle technology in a way that we cannot get there with our existing um, intelligent transport or ITS coverage, right. right? We don't have enough cameras. Right. We don't have enough inductive loops in the road to know right. what's happening with black ice or what's happening with hydroplaning. Right. This is a breakthrough opportunity with connected vehicle data because it creates this crowdsourced data flow mm -hmm. that is validated all the way back to the source. Mm. And I'm going to compare it for a minute to Waze. Okay. Okay, so Waze is crowdsourced, mm -hmm. but it's not validated information. Right. In fact, anyone can use Waze and manipulate the data mm -hmm. for their own outcome or for their own designs. Mm -hmm. And we've actually seen that happen before mm. where organizations are using Waze to manipulate traffic patterns for specific reasons. Mm -hmm. So this is similar to Waze, except the data stream is validated mm. all the way back to the source. Mm -hmm. And it's crowdsourced from the vehicles themselves and not from the users. And so as the fleet becomes connected, mm -hmm. the validated data source and that pipeline mm -hmm. of validated and secure data grows and diversifies. Mm. And so that's what the opportunity is and what we're building for. And when I say building for, I mean we, those who work on the infrastructure side, understand the depth of clarity and insight, the depth of situational awareness mm -hmm. that is being opened up, mm -hmm. and understand the importance of building the infrastructure to enable that technology to keep us safer and to make traveling more efficient. Mm. And so the other piece of this that the transportation agencies will tell you that doesn't necessarily hit my balance sheet mm -hmm. at the Ray, mm -hmm. um, but is certainly um, that much more compelling for the transportation agencies is that, you know, these radios are not expensive. Mm. You know, per unit you're talking about today, maybe $10,000 mm. plus or minus. Right. That's a drop in the bucket for agencies that are managing multi-million dollar projects on a regular basis. Right. Um, and in the state of Georgia, over the next five years, you're going to see complete coverage of all of our state highways and our interstates by these really simple and cost-efficient radios that are going to be able to leverage connect-to-car data streams in a system that creates more efficiency and improved safety for everyone who wants to tap into the information that the data unlocks. So the radios are part of the infrastructure and then the transmitter is in the vehicle? That's and that's right. Okay. I mean, they, look, I'm, I tend to be a technology optimist, so I, I tend to le lean towards how am I going to leverage this and figure out how we protect ourselves from sometimes we, whether it's ourselves or our government or knuckleheads around us. No different than uh, I was just watching somebody who um, was catching people that were in these, um, these scams where they, 
you know, whether it's, hey, we're going to fix your computer or whatever it is, and they catch them. And none of us think, I need to get rid of my computer. What we think about is, how do I stop the spam from my phone or from my computer or these people exploiting me, right? We're more focused on how do we stop the exploitation, not how do we get rid of the technology. Um, When you were talking about weather events, one of the things I thought was just spectacularly tragic, I'm pretty sure it was in Houston, Within the last few years, a they get these terrible, very quick tropical storms that just hit. And somebody lost their life that had lived there their whole life, was familiar with these storms. <clears throat> they went in a particular area that just moments before was safe to drive through. They drove through, caught their vehicle in just the right way with this flash flood that came through because of some circumstances upstream, caught their vehicle. And um, caught a couple of vehicles in front of them. By the time they realized what was happening, they were sort of stalled in the middle of it, caught it, swept it down. I don't think everybody in the vehicle passed away, but um, certainly people passed away that didn't need to, that if we had information like that, to say, hey, hold on, we have a circumstance here, avoid this area or whatever in real time. That's the other thing that I love is in real time. Whether if in the beginning it's every vehicle or just some proliferation of vehicles that are reacting and they can, um, you know, they can help to update the situation. The other is um, I now have three daughters, um, late teens and in their 20s driving. And I would love to know that their vehicle is getting to where it's supposed to be, when it's supposed to be there. One of the things, my terrible nightmare is, I remember as a kid, I don't know why this stuck with me so much of all the tragedies, but somebody's... Um, kid, late teens, had worked somewhere, got off work late at night, went home, and they just found their car, you know, the next day on the side of the road. There's no, there's no, we don't know. It's a 30-year mystery, 40-year mystery. That would just eat me up as a parent. And so I love this idea of interconnected infrastructure. Why is this vehicle behaving abnormally? What were the other vehicles in the area? What are the circumstances that are going on? And the one hand that feels like surveillance I, I suppose if that's if you have this sort of pessimistic outlook on it, I feel like it is in the very best way. How do we know what's going on with our people that are vulnerable around us and make sure that we're removing loopholes to exploit um, each other? I don't know. I I am all for the interconnected world, even if it's just how do I figure out where to park when I want to go see Sticks and Ario Speedwagon tonight <laughs> because I cannot find a parking spot. <laughs> Feels like interconnected is the way to go. What's what's really r- realistic in seeing something like that getting deployed in a meaningful way? Oh, well, I mean, I'll I'll go through the the list of benefits because okay. we've only talked about weather use cases. I mean, the weather use <clears throat> cases top my list just because of what we experience in the southeast right. with both flash flooding and also black ice. <clears throat> but in addition to weather use cases, so crashes. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't know that one just happened right. down the road. And sometimes crashes shut down interstates for hours, mm-hmm. which affects not only passenger vehicle drivers, but also the drivers of medium and heavy duty vehicles that are essentially running this nation's mm-hmm. economy mm-hmm. and pushing commerce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what we can tell with connected vehicle data streams is exactly when and where a crash happens because you can get hard braking, you can get 
uh, airbag deployment. Mm -hmm. Um, You can get changes in latitude and longitude. Mm -hmm. You can get all of that showing up on the the screen Mm -hmm. at the state DOT or at the transportation agency. Because that data is being managed, the packet is being heard 10 times every second. Mm. So it's very low latency. It's very low delay information about crashes, also heartbreaking events, and congestion in queue. Now, we can't quite get to queue yet because we don't have enough vehicles that are connected to understand when and how queues are forming outside of crashes and heartbreaking events. Mm-hmm. Um, but we'll get to queues as the number of connected vehicles in the U.S. fleet increases. Mm-hmm. So that's going to be great, mm-hmm. understanding where are the queues, where are the barriers or the crashes, the unexpected events that are happening on the interstate and the highway system. Mm-hmm. In our urban areas, connected vehicles of all types can ask for green lights at red light intersections or can demand green lights. Hmm. And in fact, for emergency vehicles, ambulances, fire trucks, police responders, mm-hmm. their type of request of connected signalized intersections or mm-hmm. red light intersections, mm-hmm. their type of request is called preemption because it preempts all of the other signals. Mm. So an ambulance that is connected or a fire truck that is connected can shut down traffic intersections down a pathway or down a route. Mm-hmm. So you can make way for all greens for first responders while holding all other traffic at bay, mm. achieving efficiency of travel and improved safety on that emergency route. Mm. Um, for medium duty and heavy duty vehicles, you can ask politely for a green light and you can get one at the first opportunity or a red light intersection can hold a green light for a medium or heavy duty vehicle. Mm. And we're doing this right now on the Ray Highway around the Kia Georgia facility. Vehicles that have a radio are able to talk to the connected signalized intersections, the hanging red lights that also have a radio. And those vehicles servicing that manufacturing facility can ask politely for a green light. Same thing is happening down at the Savannah port Mm -hmm. to help egress and ingress from the Savannah and the Brunswick seaports. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about awesome economic opportunity, awesome efficiency opportunity for logistics and the flow of freight across the state and across the southeast, in addition to detection of crashes and other impediments to your travel on the highway, in addition to weather impacts. And then last but not least is construction and work zone safety. So transportation agencies can also program in where there are construction zones and any of the constraints around those construction zones, right? Like you need to limit your speed to 35 miles per hour. That information can live in a connected vehicle data ecosystem. And that information can be strategically communicated to vehicles that are geofenced in that area, Mm. that are within that geofenced area. When was the last time you went to Six Flags? I mean, it was when I was a senior in high school and yeah. I was cajoled by my friends into riding the scream machine backwards 10 times in a row. And that was the last yeah. time. Good times. I could see why it'd be like your last time. <laughs> we went um, <clears throat> within the last few years and they have this thing called the fast pass or a fast lane or whatever it is. And you pay a, a, a more of a fee 
and um, you get this you get this device, and it allows you to skip the long line. There's part of me that can't help but think if we put in these tools, which I love the idea, in particular with first responders, how many incidents can we avoid, not just the safety of the people that are responding, but to get to who they're responding to quicker or delivering, 100% on board on that. But people being people, when is it that, well, I need a Maybe not that, but I at least need the construction lane because I'm a state congressperson or I'm a successful entrepreneur in the city or I'm a, you know, when can I, when can I buy my fast pass? That's, that's when this, not the skeptic, but the cynical part of me comes out and says, you know, how do we make sure? It's almost like um, uh, uh, handicap passes. You know, once upon a time, it was hard to get a handicap pass and let's do it. And now the other day I was watching somebody, I'm like, you must be driving somebody else's car then because, it, you know, and I don't want to judge or, or project, but it just felt like it was looser than I remember. And so on the one hand, I mean, that wouldn't be enough reason to not forward something like this. First responder. The other is construction. How many people do we have standing in the road? This just happened by my neighborhood because where we live in North Gwinnett County, um, construction everywhere. And I feel terrible for these people that are standing in the road with the slow or stop because many times it's not convenient. The reason why they have to be out there is because it's in a turn or it's in a it's in a dangerous um, area at any speed. It's not a fast road, 45 miles an hour. But you come around this corner and this dump truck is coming out to do its thing, <clears throat> it, it would be fantastic if we had the ability to tell my car I yeah. would be on board with this, hey, or my kids more. Because I'm experienced and I, it would be uncommon but not impossible for me to be surprised by something like that. But for newer drivers in particular, or certainly distracted drivers, which is a epidemic right now, to come around that corner for them, for the person standing in the road, for the dump t- truck driver or whatever, for the property owners around that, um, we've certainly got to be able to leverage technology to help us solve this problem. Yeah, it's. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna go macro for a minute. Love it. So 2020 fatality figures were released <clears throat> from the National Highway. Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, and NHTSA has said in 2020 that we had a 16-year high for fatalities on our roadways. Mm. And to, you know, metabolize that information in 2022 mm-hmm. when, you know, we have flying taxis now. Right. The FAA just gave a commercial permit to a flying taxi company just a couple of weeks ago. Wow. How is it that we have flying taxis and all of the advancements that technology has afforded mobility, and yet we're losing more people than we have in almost two decades. Yeah. And so I think part of it is, um, you know, the infrastructure needs to catch up to the advancements that are being made in the vehicles in order to extract what is the best of the opportunity, not the minimum Mm -hmm. of the opportunity, but to really leverage the opportunity for safety and efficiency that the technology is being developed to deliver. That technology cannot deliver on the best of its potential without having 
modernization of infrastructure. Mm -hmm. um, it is simply a, a fact that mm -hmm. infrastructure has a long way to catch up. And I think, well, not just I, but you know, state DOTs like Georgia's DOT believes that connected and autonomous vehicle technology will reduce crashes by a minimum of 80%. So we have a we have an opportunity that we're targeting, that we're tracking toward, um, but we need to be able to, number one, accept the technology as a society, and number two, build the infrastructure that's mm -hmm. gonna enable the potential to save lives and keep families whole. Now let's talk about surveillance and mm -hmm. let's talk about security of that information. Mm -hmm. So connected card data has a random identifier. Okay. It does not say Allie Kelly. Mm -hmm. It does not say anything about my vehicle. The data packet has information about the vehicle type, mm -hmm. but the identifier doesn't say anything about the vehicle, the VIN, the license plate, the person to whom the vehicle is registered, none of that information. It's a random identifier. And that random identifier changes every five minutes. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible to identify and it's impossible to track vehicles that are connected and that are broadcasting data streams. This is literally, um, I guess, an improvement over Waze because to right. enter information, to be a part of the Waze ecosystem, you have right. to identify yourself. To be a part of the connected vehicle ecosystem, right. you simply have to drive a connected vehicle. Well, I try like to be a little bit of a devil's advocate here with my friends who would raise a concern like this. And I'm like, did you use Google Maps today? Yeah. Everything in your phone is telling the whole world everything about you. You have this illusion of privacy and security that is just that. It is an illusion. <clears throat> um, and so they don't, they don't need to have anything like that. I didn't know that happened in this technology, but they don't need it. Your phone tells them everything that they need, whoever the quote unquote they is. Um, and so I think it's a it's a non-starter, but that's great information to know. Yeah, I try to gently nudge people <laughs> into the direction of like just what the what the facts are. Right. I mean, so so first of all, connected vehicle technology is not a surveillance. It 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 is not designed. The data packets, the technology itself is designed to be anonymous, to be masked, to go through some process of unanonymizing or unmasking the data would be to go back to the very core of the technology itself. Right. It is intended to be about situational awareness and managing data streams from a CAN bus, mm. right, about a vehicle's experience on the road. It's not about Allie going to the Frisky Whiskey right. to get yet another. Yeah. Whatever the others are at <laughs> right. the Frisky Whiskey. Exactly. Right. So, so there's that piece. But then the reality is, is that, look, you know, T-Mobile has everything on us. Right. And also mm -hmm. vehicles that are connected to their OEM via LTE. Right. Look, you know, every movement is already being monitored and we have no access to that data. Right. I have no access to the file that Elon Musk has on my right. Tesla Model X. Right. And, the thing, and the, there's a file. And there is a file. Of course there's a file. The other thing is I, I said, you know, you're going to, when we get to autonomous vehicles in particular, hopefully we'll wait for them to be or, or, uh, um, yeah, autonomous vehicles. We'll use our apps. We'll use our stuff in there. 
you're signed into your Netflix or you're signed into your news app, you're signed into your laptop or your tablet or whatever, and you're going to be doing those things while the vehicle drives itself, reducing um, accidents or saving lives by at least 80%, hopefully more. All of that's being transmitted anyway. And so unless you're very purposeful and there's some specific thing, um, which none of us are today, um, it is... uh, it, it just feels like it's being alarmist. It's a non-starter. It's not really something we need to worry about. And it's also about trade-offs, right? Sure. And to say this gently with no snark, but the trade-offs are if you want to have Gmail email, mm-hmm. then you're going to get ads for the genes that you've been looking at on some other website right. using your internet browser right. or using your phone. Right. If you want next-day delivery from Amazon Prime or... Amazon Smile, and you can make your donation to the Ray. Right. If you want your next day delivery, then you're trading off, you know, Bezos. Right. Knowing everything about where you are, what your delivery locations, what are your um, shopping and perusing patterns, what are you buying and how often. I mean, there's all of that depth of information, and it's about trade-offs. If you want the convenience of email, do you want the convenience of socializing on Facebook? Right. Well, turn it over to Zuckerberg, who everyone loves to hate. Right. Right? These are people, and these are companies that everyone loves to hate, but the reality is is that we make trade-offs every day in order to use those platforms or to tap into those services. Right. And so when I talk about connected vehicle technology to keep families whole, to reduce crashes and fatalities, and to achieve marginal improvements and efficiencies for our country's economy, mm-hmm. I feel like those are trade-offs that we should run, don't walk. Right. Right? That's a run into those opportunities right. um, trade-off scenario because, I mean, we're already making those trade-offs for much lower yield results every day. So why don't we start with, what is the Ray? So the Ray is actually a public charity. We're a 501c3 organization. We're based in Atlanta. We're also based in LaGrange, which is in West Georgia. Mm -hmm. And our role in the world and what we spend every day doing is facilitating innovation and facilitating technology with transportation agencies. So we're trying to hold hands with the agencies in the public sector that build and maintain the roads and all that comes along with transportation. Mm. Our goals at the Ray are number one, net zero. So what does that mean? Zero deaths, zero carbon and zero waste. But it's not just some lofty goal around saving the world. Mm It's actually our dogged belief that the technologies exist today. Mm-hmm. They're already here. And those technologies will get us to zero. Mm-hmm. Those technologies will reduce crashes, save lives, reduce carbon, reduce waste, increase productivity. And we've talked about a lot of that already mm-hmm. in connected vehicle mm-hmm. technology. But there's a whole host of technologies that are already innovated, proven, and ready for scaling. They're ready for prime time and they're gonna get us to zero. Mm -hmm. The gap is the installation, the execution, the leveraging of those technologies and those tools. And that's where the Ray comes in. Mm -hmm. You know, I like to say we're philanthropy and we're here to help. Mm -hmm. We really are here to help the public sector to figure out 
How do they get in touch with the technologies or the technologists? How do they work through procurement, right? Mm -hmm. Those bureaucracy, right? Mm -hmm. How do they work through procurement to get to projects mm -hmm. with these new technologies? And really to zoom out, how do we help to mitigate those risks? Because at the end of the day, transportation is already risky, mm -hmm. right? People live and die in transportation. Mm -hmm. Commerce happens or doesn't happen in transportation. A breakdown in transportation is a breakdown in systems. Mm -hmm. It's a breakdown in communities. It's a breakdown in our economy. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of risk already embedded in transportation. And when you start talking about doing new things, that adds to the risk. And so we are the force that tries to mitigate and lower the risk associated with innovative transportation projects. Mm -hmm. And we do that through charity instead of doing it through the private sector because the public sector struggles with having really close relationships with the private sector. Mm -hmm. And that's because the private sector is in the the whole purpose of the businesses in the private sector is to mm -hmm. make money, to mm -hmm. make profit. Mm -hmm. So the Ray being a nonprofit, we're not here to profit as far as revenue. We're mm -hmm. here to profit in terms of what kind of good we can bring to the world and what kind of good we can bring to the transportation system. Why did it start here in Georgia? Did it start here in Georgia? I think it did. Why did it start here? It did. So the beginning of the Ray goes all the way back to 2014 okay. when our former governor, Nathan Deal, worked with the state legislature to designate a stretch of Interstate 85 on the western side of the state mm -hmm. as the Ray C. Anderson Memorial Highway, okay. hence the name the Ray. Right. So who was Ray Anderson? Ray Anderson was born in West Point, Georgia, which is at the Georgia-Alabama state line right mm -hmm. there on the Chattahoochee River. Mm -hmm. He began his journey in LaGrange, 18 miles away, when he started a company called Interface in the 1970s. Interface was a 1970s startup. It was a unicorn. Mm -hmm. It was a small investment made by two or three Georgia boys from LaGrange mm -hmm. in a newfangled product for the American market called the carpet tile, mm -hmm. modular carpet. Right. And at the end of the 1970s is when everything started to get big in the 80s, right? Big hair, big shoulder pads, skyscrapers. Yep. Businesses wanted to invest in offices that had cubicles, that had shared space, that mm -hmm. also had you know, nice corner suites and multiple floors and skyscrapers. Mm -hmm. That became all the rage in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. And Ray Anderson and Interface were the only American company positioned to handle the demand for carpet tile. Mm. Why was there a demand for carpet tile? Because if you start to have multiple offices, multiple floors of offices, and there's uh, cubicle space and modular um, arrangement of the office, the wiring has to move from the ceiling to the floor to accommodate that. You can't have various wires hanging down from right. the ceiling as you're moving around your office, your, your new modular office space. And Interface was the carpet tile company in the United States, started in the 1970s. And so Ray raised a billion dollar business in less than two decades off of the engine of American business going into skyscrapers and gobbling up carpet tile. So how do you connect the carpet tile guy from West Georgia to innovative highway development? That's such a great question. So in the early 1990s, um, Ray was forced to reckon with the linear nature of his company. Mm. So carpet is petroleum-based. So you're taking a finite 
natural resource to make the fiber, to make the backing of carpet. Mm -hmm. The carpet goes into a useful life or service life of 10 to 20 years. Then the carpet goes to the landfill where it hangs out for a couple hundred years. Mm -hmm. It's not biodegradable. Mm -hmm. It doesn't break down. It takes a very long time. And I mean, honestly, the West Coast market forced Ray Anderson to reckon with all of that waste and to reckon with the origin of the raw material, which was the petroleum industry, and started to force him into making a sustainability manifesto or a sustainability statement for Interface, um, which he was vigorously opposed to at first Mm -hmm. because he was a billion-dollar business CEO from West Georgia, Mm -hmm. incredibly competitive, former football player, wanted nothing to do with tree-hugging. Right. Um, But what he understood is that he had to respond to the market, and it was an increasing and growing concern of the marketplace, this Mm -hmm. newfangled sustainability. But he also recognized that there were economic efficiencies in going green Mm -hmm. or going circular. Mm -hmm. And so what Ray started to do was, you know, as you start with a carpet roll and you cut it down into carpet tiles, you have a ton of waste on the manufacturing floor. And so something as simple as gathering that waste and reincorporating that carpet waste from the manufacturing floor into new carpet was an entry-level Um, opportunity for Interface to start reducing their raw material inputs Mm -hmm. and reducing the cost of all of that waste, of disposing Mm -hmm. of all of that waste. Mm -hmm. So that's how Interface started going circular, just very low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. Um, But I want to give credit where credit is due to Ray Anderson. In 1994, he laid down the gauntlet publicly and said, my company, this Georgia-based carpet manufacturer Mm -hmm. is going to go zero waste to landfill, zero carbon. We're going to use renewable energy and we're going to use wastewater reuse and we are going to go zero by 2020. And so Ray understood how to take the first step. He Mm -hmm. understood how to find the low hanging fruit and he understood what the business and operational efficiencies were embedded in those sustainability moves. But he didn't know how he was going to get to the end goal in mm-hmm. 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, Ray didn't live long enough to see Interface get to the 2020 mm-hmm. finish line. Mm-hmm. Um, during COVID, the company announced that they had zeroed out their carbon. Mm-hmm. So they are officially a carbon neutral company. And Interface is starting to introduce new carpet products that embody more carbon in the carpet than was emitted during the manufacturing. It's really important to understand sequester versus embody. Mm -hmm. The carpet doesn't collect carbon from the air and sequester it into the tile. What this means is that there is more carbon that has been innovated into the fiber and into the backing of the carpet, and it actually stores carbon in its very being. Mm. It's not actively sequestering it, but it represents more carbon reused productively in that carpet tile than was emitted in the manufacturing process. And so this is what they call carbon positive. Um, And it's an entire movement that Interface is a part of for us to reframe the climate crisis Mm -hmm. away from this existential battle or war or fight where carbon is the enemy. Mm -hmm. And for us to understand that, well, we have too much carbon in the atmosphere and carbon's actually really productive on Mm -hmm. planet Earth. Mm -hmm. And so how do we begin to love carbon, Mm -hmm. bring it home, 
and use it in our manufacturing processes and use it across sectors. And they're demonstrating how to do that in the flooring and in the manufacturing sector. So that's the the great story of Interface. They're mm-hmm. not yet zero waste to landfill. They're really mm-hmm. close. It's mm-hmm. like 99.9% zero waste to landfill. Um, but in terms of Ray Anderson and the mission that he foresaw, you know, check the box, mission accomplished. It continues, the company Interface continues to be one of the world's leader in sustainability. And moreover, Ray Anderson, being the businessman, mm-hmm. not the environmentalist, mm-hmm. but being the businessman, documented during his lifetime the economic impact, the impact to the bottom line and the balance sheet of Interface of going green. Mm-hmm. And he documented more than $400 million and nearly $450 million worth of savings to the company as a result of these greening initiatives. Um, And in the latter part of his life and his career, he went on and shared that information with other companies. So Walmart, Unilever, Coca-Cola, these are just some examples of the direct beneficiaries of Ray Anderson's work and interface, which he not only shared himself personally, but also documented in a number of books. Um, There are documentaries made about him. And right now in business schools across the United States and around the world, they're teaching interface as a case study. And that is our DNA at the Ray. Mm -hmm. It's a long story, but it's a story worth understanding because it then becomes really obvious why the Georgia government would designate a memorial highway to honor that kind of legacy, the legacy of Ray Anderson, and then why a nonprofit would seek to create more sustainability, circularity, and safety in the transportation sector because Ray Anderson has a memorial highway, and that memorial highway has to reflect his legacy, and therefore we get this test bed in West Georgia on that 18 miles of Interstate 85. There's so many cool things about that. It's just one of the things that I have noticed for myself, especially over, um, you know, when I was 19 years old, I was so certain of so many things. This is the right way. These are the right things. And I do have a few of those that I believe are empirically true, that the um, physics supports it, my experience supports it, that my community group around me supports whatever those few ideas are. But they're much fewer than they were when I was 18 or 19 years old. And what I, I say that to say that over time, one of the things that I had to learn how to do was change my mind, to let data change my mind or to acquiesce to um, when you, to, to a particular perspective that for whatever reason I just adopted. So for example, when you talked about Ray in the beginning, I'm, I am resistant to somebody outside of my organization or my business telling me <clears throat> or my, my world, how we need to go through the world. But somewhere, whether he embraces it or ended up embracing it for all the ideas that all of the people that come to this embrace it for, but at least was wise enough to say, I need to learn how to do this. And if I'm going to learn how to do it, I might as well, to the best that a flawed human being can embrace something. That's another thing I distresses me in our world today keep looking for these people to perfectly embrace something. It doesn't exist. There is no perfect. And in fact, if it does, it's probably a sham or should scare the hell out of you. We can have flawed people where we don't agree on a lot of these other things, but in this thing, we're aligned. So let's be aligned. My neighbor the other day just, and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to put too many words in his mouth, but essentially we were talking about energy independence. That's kind of how I labeled the conversation. 
he is so interested in solar now where before he never would have been because he felt like some group in America was trying to tell him, this guy in Georgia, how to live his life and um, what the consequences of um, not using renewable energy were. And he was very resistant to that. Now he has grown to the point where he's like, man, if I, if I have solar supplementing or completely replacing, I can have energy independence, which is really what he wants. I want to be as independent of the grid or whatever as I can. He's not a prepper, but just, and the grid's my, it's my failover instead of the opposite. Well, look who you're aligned with now and a number of people. And I, and more and more people I think are getting better at having the argument instead of saying, there must be something wrong with you if you don't see this particular thing the way I see it. They're getting more. I think this is one of your great talents. I've heard you speak many times or at least listen to you speak many times. How do I listen to my audience to find out where we can intersect? Because I think if you knew the benefits, for example, of innovation in this space for you and for your family, for your economics, for your safety, for your grandkids, for yourself, for all of these things, unless unless there's some ulterior motive that you've got, some or a lot, if not all of these, you would be for if you understood the truth about them. But I, when I've heard you speak, Ali, you don't usually come with this, you must be, you know, this very militant thing. It's more like, let me help you understand where I'm coming from and why. And that's unfortunately, I think sometimes becoming more and more rare for people to do because we rally around our team. But I love that story about Ray, whether it's for business reasons or whatever his original motives were, or maybe ended up being the end of the day, this is how he impacted business and this particular situation. Absolutely. I mean, the funny thing about Ray is that he was neither a hero on day one, or on day one. right? And so what I mean by that is the first day that somebody said, hey, what's the sustainability platform at Interface? And he reacted with hostility. We comply by all the rules and regulations at the state and the federal level. What do you mean what's our sustainability platform? Then he turned around and delegated it, right? right? Like all great leaders. He was not a hero when he responded in that way on the first day that he heard the question. Neither on the first day that he announced his mission, Mission Zero, was he a hero. When he rolled into the executive meeting and he said, guys and gals, we're going zero. And what that means is zero carbon at Interface, zero waste to landfill at Interface. They all thought he was crazy and tried to figure out how to kick him out of the company. Sure. So he was neither a hero on either side of the coin, on the day one that he heard the complaint or the day one that he responded with Mission Zero. Mm. Similarly, his daughter Harriet, Harriet Anderson Langford, is Mm -hmm. the woman who founded the Ray. She was with Governor Nathan Deal when he signed the resolution that created the Memorial Highway. Mm. And she's driving back to LaGrange where she still lives. And as she's driving on Interstate 85 to go home Mm -hmm. from the state capitol, she's looking at the reality of our highways and interstates. There's trash, there's dead deer, Mm -hmm. there's crashed cars, there's black soot coming out of trucks and some cars. Mm -hmm. The stormwater is degrading the roadsides, there's erosion. Honestly, 
if we took a moment to really see the interstate system for what it is today mm-hmm. with all of the congestion and all of those all of all of those areas where it falls short mm-hmm. and if we if we could take that into account in the context of how much money we spend on transportation and transportation infrastructure and we really asked ourselves honestly mm-hmm. are we getting what we pay for mm-hmm. is this working well mm-hmm. for anyone mm-hmm. the reality is is that this is kind of the last frontier for technology, for innovation and sustainability to pierce and take root. And that's what we're doing at the Ray. We're mm-hmm. trying to take these threads that Ray started for us in a totally different sector, mm-hmm. heavy industry, manufacturing, flooring. Mm-hmm. And we're trying to pull those threads through to transportation and to pioneer these concepts in the transportation world where there is more than enough opportunity. There's more than enough work for us to do. Mm. And similarly, you know, when Harriet started to say, hey, has anyone ever heard of a sustainable highway? What if we had a net zero highway? What Mm. if it was zero carbon? Nobody believed in that future. Mm. And nobody believed that transportation agencies like state DOTs could be partners in working toward that future. And so, you know, I guess it takes a little bit of crazy mm-hmm. to be a little bit ahead of your time. Mm-hmm. And I guess it takes a little bit of dogged determination to continue to pursue goals that are a little ahead of people's thinking and imagination. And ultimately, Ray had to find a way for people to plug in wherever they were coming from. Mm-hmm. Do you care about the bottom line? Do you care about tipping fees? Do you care about oil and petroleum? Mm-hmm. Do you care about the climate crisis and carbon? Mm-hmm. What do you care about? Mm-hmm. Come at us from wherever you are, and we'll meet you halfway. And that's how we operate at the Ray. If you don't care about the climate crisis and you don't think about carbon, I don't have a problem with that. Mm-hmm. What do you care about? Do you care about crashes and fatalities? Do you care about all the real estate and how it could be better utilized on the roadsides of the interstate system? Do you care about piles of tires, all those tire dumps in your community? Because the Ray is here to meet you wherever you are. And that is why I think, you know, we're not working in kind of the obvious areas of the country, right? Mm -hmm. The Ray isn't big in California, Mm -hmm. right? We work across the country Mm. in states like Texas, Alabama, Oklahoma, Maryland and Maine, Mm. Arizona. Mm. Um, And I I think, you know, it's not to the detriment of anyone living in any particular state. It's just reflective of our ability to make the work valuable from whatever point of view you're Mm -hmm. coming from or whatever your priorities are. I love what you said there, a little bit crazy. So how did you get involved in the Ray? I feel like there's a little bit crazy story there. How did you get involved with them, or why was this attractive to you? Well, it's all about family, right? Ray Anderson's daughter, Harriet, was the first to ask the question, Right. what's a sustainable highway, and can we make this a sustainable highway? Mm -hmm. And the first person Harriet called was Allie. Mm. And, you know, at that point, I nobody had the answers. Mm-hmm. I certainly didn't have the answers. Mm-hmm. But because of the relationship between Harriet and myself, mm-hmm. because we were friends mm-hmm. and we trusted each other, mm-hmm. we started that conversation. Mm-hmm. Right? 
at a sustainable highway system, there would be wildflowers on the side of the road, mm-hmm. right? Not Bermuda, right? Shortly mown, right? <laughs> it's it's not the golf course, right? It's not the Masters we're going for here, right. people, right? Um, maybe on a sustainable highway there would be solar panels. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't there be solar panels? It's an awful lot of land out there, right? So those are the those are the beginning ideas. Those mm-hmm. are the kernels right, that mm-hmm. sit at the heart of the conversation in those early days. And because of the determination of, um, of the Ray and of Harriet and the family of Ray Anderson who supported the Ray year after year, and because of the approach that we take in the work, you know, we're now working projects in 25 states. Hmm. So we've developed more than a dozen projects on the 18-mile corridor with our partners at Georgia DOT and the Federal Highway Administration. And from that test bed, we're scaling projects of different shapes and sizes, but all inspired by the test bed in 25 states with more than three dozen transportation agencies. It's just phenomenal that you can get public groups to work together effectively like that. And I mean that with no disrespect, but I have a lot of experience with various public entities in many states, California, Texas, here, and and throughout the country. And it's, in the past, it's been an exception when it was an efficient, uh, productive experience, not necessarily rude. I generally find them friendly and polite. That's not what I mean. But it was um, efficient and effective is not the way that I would describe it. And it sounds like with this... um, Without diving too much into that, I, I we can if you want to. But one of the things where when I first heard of the ray, I was searching for something else, and I came across this idea of rubberized roads, which I thought was ridiculous. That can't possibly be true. Now I'm waiting for my rubberized road because I am completely on board. Can you describe what that is, at least as it relates to the ray and the innovation that you're part of? Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics. Okay, to talk about. Um, in the ecosystem that the Ray has built on the Ray Highway and is now scaling to other states. And here's why it's one of my favorite topics. Because Ray Anderson took a waste product and he went circular with that waste and turned it into raw material for new product. And that is exactly what happens with scrap tire rubber. So similar to the carpet tile, Scrap tires do not break down in landfills. It takes 80 to 100 years for a scrap tire to even begin to break down. And the scale of the waste stream is astonishing. Mm. Um, 263.4 million scrap tires from the U.S. alone every year. So every year, one quarter of a billion scrap tires that won't break down for a century. Um, You can't think about that too Mm -hmm. often because it becomes depressing and it's essentially an indictment of what we're leaving the future generations. The cool thing and what pulls you out of the depths of despair Mm -hmm. around tires is that they have second life opportunities. And rubber modified asphalt in particular is nothing new. This Mm. was first developed in the 1980s. It's been innovated for 40 years now. And it is both cost efficient and a very convenient product 
for paving contractors to use. So essentially we're in the golden age of mm. rubber modified asphalt and thank goodness that we are because it is a fact that electric vehicles have accelerated tire wear. And this is a hard conversation to have, especially with folks who are in the environmental movement. Mm -hmm. They wanna believe that electric vehicles are perfect. Mm -hmm. And we just discussed right. things are not perfect right. in the world, including electric vehicles. Right. They are not perfect. Right. And there are and will be unintended consequences of the electrification of transportation in the United States and around the world. Right. And for the US, one of the undeniable unintended consequences is going to be, at least in the short term, an increase in our tire waste streams mm -hmm. and not an insignificant increase. And the only analysis that we have thus far projects a 24% increase in tire wear for electric vehicles. Why is it so much more with EV? It's the very nature of the electric vehicle and the system of moving power from a motor direct to a wheel. Mm -hmm. There is no engine, there is no distribution of power, it is instant torque. Um, it is instant it is. on yeah. and instant off. Yeah, and I love it. Which is it. why you have regenerative braking, yeah. right? Because you generate energy when you're using regenerative braking because the power is instant to the wheel and instant off of the wheel, mm. right? Right. So it's the very physics and the very nature of an electric vehicle that eats the tires away. I didn't even think about that. Um, also, um, less uh, of, a, of a factor, less of an influence, but still should be noted that the world has cared more about range anxiety than anything else yeah. with electric vehicles. Yeah. And so the OEMs have responded accordingly, and the tires that are most often specified for electric <clears throat> vehicles are low rolling resistance tires. Because if it takes less energy, if your tires have less resistance <coughs> when they roll, right. then you're going to be using less energy from the battery and thus saving more energy to address range anxiety. Well, the problem with that is that low rolling resistance tires are not durable tires. <coughs> and so essentially we're putting the least durable tires on machines that yeah. are instant torque, direct power to wheel, and we're shredding our tires and anecdotally not reflected in the single bit of analysis but anecdotally um you know the the tire wear is probably accelerated far beyond 24 percent we're probably talking you know 35 percent 40 percent accelerated tire wear and th these are solvable sure challenges but it's going to take some time of innovation and it's gonna take some introduction of new technology on the tire side. And that's gonna right. take five to 10 years, maybe a little more right. for us to get that, that side of this, which is the tire product side, to be innovated to meet the challenge of tire waste on electric vehicles, right? And in the meantime, we need to be upfront, we need to be honest, we need to be able to have conversations right. about electric vehicles and their unintended consequences, one consequence of which is an increase in tire waste. And for the driver, that means that you're gonna pay more money to keep your vehicles in appropriate tires, right? right? Tires that aren't overworn. Um, for those of us on the infrastructure side, what this means is that there's going to be even more tire waste available for building rubber-modified asphalt roads. 
And so our role at the Ray with others like Pirelli Tire is to continue beating the drum around the benefits of rubber modified asphalt to get more and more infrastructure providers, infrastructure engineers mm. to get into the movement of paving rubber roads. Um, the benefits are um, almost impossible to really go through, mm -hmm. um, but I'm going to hit the high points. Okay. So rubber roads last twice as long. Okay. Rubber roads do not crack. Really? So not only do they last twice as long, right. but they are less expensive to maintain and they require less dangerous circumstances of human beings in the middle of the roadway trying to fill cracks. Okay. So there's a life safety improvement. There's an economic improvement over the life of the road. And there's that increased longevity, which means you get twice as much as like BOGO at Publix, but right. for roads. Okay. In addition to that, they're quieter. So selfishly, as an EV driver, right. I think that's great because the predominant noise that you hear in your vehicle when you're driving right. electric is road noise. Right. But I want you to think about the communities that are located alongside our state highways and our interstate system. These are by and large disadvantaged communities because they live next to the interstate, right? right? The only change to that generalization is when you get into urban areas right. and people are packed everywhere. Right. But over the open road, if you live next to the interstate, <clears throat> you're probably in right. you know, a community that is low income and disadvantaged. And right. so reducing the road noise for those communities is a great opportunity. Also rubber roads wear rubber tires differently. Rubber roads actually reduce the tire particulate matter. The mm. particles from tire wear on the roadway, mm -hmm. those, the particulate matter is reduced. And this is a really um, uh, just interesting and I mean, most people don't understand that we've made so much progress in the energy sector, reducing air pollution from coal-fired power plants, mm -hmm. that one of the biggest sources of PM 2.5 or small particulate pollution is now tire wear from our roads. That's... It's insane. It's insane. And so rubber in asphalt reduces the noise and the air pollution for disadvantaged communities that are located adjacent to highways and interstate systems. And that's the kind of equity benefit that we try not to lose sight of, right? Equity is, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is right. like you know, one of the pop culture words right. of the day, right? right? But like, what does it really mean? Right. What does it really mean in transportation to build roads that create more equity and improve the, the living conditions that improve the quality of life for communities that are adjacent to highways and interstates? Well, rubber roads are without a doubt an opportunity for us to engineer and execute equity and in transportation infrastructure. So if somebody was from that industry and was not for rubber roads, why would they say this isn't a good idea? Well, some of it is history. Mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately, it's not <clears throat> so much history that it is in the past. Mm. It still continues to be a part of our collective present in road building. Um, 
during the President Clinton administration, there was a federal mandate for all state DOTs to pave at least 10% of their roads with rubber-modified asphalt. Mm-hmm. You have to remember that rubber-modified asphalt was first innovated in the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And so a national mandate in the first 10 years of this pavement innovation was ill-advised. Mm-hmm. And some states had a really bad experience with rubber-modified asphalt in the 1990s. And here we sit in 2022, mm-hmm. and some of those pavement engineers mm-hmm. are still working at their state mm-hmm. DOT, and they will tell you that they remember the rubber-modified asphalt road on I-75, and they ain't never doing that again. Right. Well, but I mean... So perception right. and history is part of what we fight. Right. Um, another thing that we fight is low bid. So when a project goes out for bid and contractors return their bids, it's tradition to choose the lowest bid, mm-hmm. right? You equal out quality and mm-hmm. you select the lowest bidder. Mm-hmm. Well, with rubber modified asphalt, you're modifying the asphalt on day one with rubber. Mm-hmm. And so on day one, rubber modified asphalt is never going to win a low bid competition. Mm-hmm. However, if you looked at the life cycle of the roadway and the benefits, at a minimum, the 2x longevity and the crack resistance Mm -hmm. and the lowered maintenance costs, in a life cycle analysis, a rubber-modified asphalt road would win every time. Mm -hmm. But in a low-bid cage match, it's going to lose time and time again. So we have to have these complicated conversations about... 40 years of innovation and where the product is now mm-hmm. available for contractors to use with confidence and with convenience. And we have to have complex conversations about low bid versus life cycle cost analysis. Mm. And it's just not as easy as it seems, even though the data, the data mm-hmm. says, the research, the analysis, the data says, pave roads with scrap tire rubber. Mm. The electrification of our transportation systems screams pave roads with rubber modified asphalt. It keeps tires out of landfills. It's a productive reuse. There are economic benefits. There are societal benefits. But when you have these conversations with the people responsible for designing and executing the projects, you're not talking about societal or economic wins anymore. You're talking about what happened in 1985 or 1995. And, you know, you're talking about, you know, traditional procurement processes like low bid. And we have work to do. Right. We have a lot of work to do. Right. Well, it's it's a... yeah, it's a phenomenal thing. I, I, I'm optimistic if, if somebody like Ray Anderson can, um, can adjust, you know, we all can. But in my world, in the data center world, we have probably many of those same West Coast companies that stepped in and said t- 10 years ago, 12 years ago, it was, what's your sustainability uh, strategy or position or framework? It was pretty loose. Now it is. If you don't have a, um, if you don't have an ESG report, if you don't have documented, audited, not just a plan, but it is demonstrable that you're executing across that plan, we're not doing business with you. We're not even we're not even submitting anything for you to bid on this. And so our industry, many of the larger providers, have pivoted for sure. Whatever the initial reasons were. They've pivoted because they want to stay in business. It's a it's a condition of being in the marketplace. 
And to their credit, our clients don't wag their finger at us. Well, you didn't pivot for the right reasons. They don't care. Did you pivot? Are you are you meeting these sustainability goals? Are you pursuing this this way? Okay, we're in. We don't we don't care why you came. So long as you came, and you have governance that shows you're part of it. In fact, they've been pretty kind in the beginning where um, it wasn't so much carbon offsets, but how are you getting to where where you're going to? Because in data centers, we need massive amounts of power and there aren't hydro plants or solar plants or wind plants right next door. So they partnered with us on how we're on this journey. But, But while these are the first steps of the journey, this is not the end of the journey, but just embrace it and move on and... um, but it's been a uh, it's been a journey for sure to persuade. But it took economic pressure. It took uh, cultural pressure. The other thing for us, anyway, is that when we embraced it early and all in, kind of like Ray coming in and said, "Well, here's the here's the plan." Um, in the beginning, a lot of our industry thought we were nuts, or other some of the early adopters of this were nuts. And now, of course, they were all, of course, it's a genius idea. We were the innovators of it. But it's. Um, there's an economic opportunity to be one of the, you know, you attract business, I believe, if you're moving in the way that the, the world wants you to move in. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, with a big public works project like this, rubberizing the roads, if other states, let me say it differently, it feels like in the world today, I'm seeing a transition of people that had to live, for example, in the San Francisco Bay Area, don't have, they can live in Tulsa, Oklahoma now and work for a San Francisco-based company or wherever. I have friends that have moved to Costa Rica that are in the IT business and they're they're doing their job here. So you can live anywhere. So if communities are building infrastructure that is attractive, whether it's the roads or connected vehicles or whatever, to improve their quality of life, I feel like then the marketplace becomes these um, these metropolitan areas and if a state wants to continue to attract people to it that are innovators and the right kind of citizens, they're going to have to address it. Yeah, I think it's a both-and strategy or okay. otherwise known as D, all of the above. Right, deal. <laughs> so for the transportation agencies, come as you are, right? right? Whatever your point of view is, <clears throat> whatever your concern is, right? Right. Come as you are. These are solutions. It's a solution set. Right. And you opt into it from wherever you are. No judgment. Right. No judgment. Right. You don't believe in carbon or climate change? Right. No problem. Come right. on in. Right. What do you care about? Right. So the solution set is flexible and it is accessible. And so that's on the transportation agency side. But what about on the public side? So we have to tell stories that give the public hope mm. because the challenges are overwhelming, right? but we're still pioneers in the United States with great ideas and opportunities at our fingertips. Mm. And we have to tell those stories. We have to ignite imagination even around something as doldrum, boring day-to-day as transportation. Mm. I, I, you know... I think rubber modified asphalt is sexy <laughs> and it goes hand in hand with electric vehicles right. and electric vehicles are really sexy. Right. So that's a, that's a story. Right. Um, you know, the other thing that we believe at the Ray is, you know, we're reading through this book and there's a lot of challenges and we're, you know, kind of valley of death <laughs> on some days. Right. 
But we believe in the final chapter that transportation saves the world. Mm. And I know that sounds really hokey. Mm -hmm. But if you look at all of the untapped potential in the transportation sector to address decarbonized energy, energy resilience, energy security, to address the digital divide, right, with increasing fiber and connectivity across the country. Mm -hmm. If you look at the assets in the land area that can also be used to deploy clean energy without disrupting our agricultural systems, without disturbing our farmland and our forest land, mm -hmm. if you think about the opportunity of the roadsides to also scale habitat to support honeybees and other pollinators that are responsible for avocados and almonds and honey itself and all the things that we love, blueberries and peaches. We think that because of the depth of the untapped potential of the transportation sector, that in the final chapter, mm -hmm. we're all surprised to learn that transportation is not where all bad things begin, but it is where all things are resolved and provided for. The hero of the story is transportation. I know we're at the end of our scheduled time. Do you have a few more minutes? Because I really want to tap into this idea that you uh, and the Ray have introduced me to, but I'm not, I'm not very familiar with it, and I want to hear you talk about it, which is, you just alluded to some of it, the right-of-way for solar, but for, for these other things. And... Like so many of these things, I'm embarrassed to say, <clears throat> um, when you first when you first brush up an, against an idea, having no experience with rubber roads, when I first heard that idea, my prejudice against them, I didn't even know I had a prejudice against the idea, but caused me to say, what are they talking about? You know, how can I arm myself? And when I come at the end of it, I'm like, can that really be true? Let me listen to another one. Well, maybe that's true. Let me listen to another. And so five in, I'm like, okay, I guess that, I mean, that resonates and that, which led to our conversation today, that resonates with me. What else, what else are these crazy people talking about? And so the interconnected vehicles, I've heard many, many times to one degree or the other, I'm very interested in the benefits of that. What I hadn't really thought of was the right-of-way conversation at all. And more than just the right-of-way solar, but the other things that you're talking about. So can you help us to understand what you mean by this right-of-way, whether it's with solar or any of these other things that you're talking about? Yeah, so in the interstate system, there's more <clears throat> land that is not paved in the, in the system mm. than there is land that is in pavement. And so what that means is that we have so much land area to work with, but we have not unleashed the potential or the opportunity of that land area because what have we needed it for mm -hmm. where have we come from in this country where we would regard the roadsides as an asset mm -hmm. in fact to this point roadsides have been listed on the liability column of every transportation agency's balance sheet mm -hmm. they have to be maintained they have to be mowed. They have to be sprayed for weeds. There has to be crash barrier installed, and the crash barrier has to be maintained. In fact, in the state of Georgia alone, just mowing the grass and spraying weeds costs us about $49 million every year for the interstate roadsides. <laughs> it's 
$50 million that is not being used for transportation infrastructure or transportation itself. Mm. We're just mowing the grass like right. it was our front yard, right. but it's not right. the interstate system. Right. So when you start to actually see the roadsides, when is the last time on a road trip that you ever regarded the roadsides as you were driving down the interstate, right? We don't see it anymore. Right. My Unless good- it's just really trash. Like the, that's the only time I particularly pay attention is if um, I, you know, and Georgia, you alluded to this earlier, we have um, almost an overpopulation of deer. And so you'll see them run over on the side of the road or like there's some mess, then it will catch my eye. But if it's, if it's not a mess, I really don't pay attention to it at all. Yeah, and it's hard to pay attention to it in, in the state of Georgia anyway because of all the billboards that right. we have that right. are distracting right. you anyway. Yeah. But when you regard the expansiveness of the roadsides and what that land could afford us as we sit here in 2022 and mm-hmm. moving forward. Mm-hmm. So that land is a great opportunity for solar energy generation. It does not disturb the transportation use. It does not create less safe operation of vehicles on the interstate system. It doesn't make less efficient or impair the system and its delivery of transportation, Mm -hmm. right? It is simply something passive on the roadsides that generates something of great value, which is more clean energy. Mm -hmm. And that land, we're never going to farm that land. Right. That land, we don't have to clear the trees. The DOT already clears the trees for us. That's one of the favorite activities, right? Right. It's to clear the trees because, you know, trees can fall and can impair the operation of the system. So trees are not desired on the roadsides, but solar can live on the roadsides and it can live there in harmony Mm-hmm. with the primary mission of the transportation system. And similarly, that land, subterranean, also has opportunities for us to expand the energy grid for the country, which we know we know has to happen. Mm-hmm. We haven't fully accepted what that means, mm-hmm. but we know it has to happen mm-hmm. because if we're going to electrify all of transportation and we're going to stop allowing gas appliances in new residential buildings, Mm -hmm. and we're going to electrify the commercial built environment, Mm -hmm. that electrify everything platform, at least the pathway that we're on right now, Mm -hmm. is going to require an increase, an improvement to the grid, Mm -hmm. right? An expansion of the grid. And there are grid enhancing technologies that can be incorporated, but we're also going to need to expand the grid itself. And so the energy grid can live on the roadsides, buried, and can also live quite nicely with fiber infrastructure. You can co-locate fiber with HVDC or HVAC cables for expanding the energy grid. And all of this is allowed by the Federal Highway Administration. Um, Last year, in April of 2021, the Federal Highway Administration, for the first time, created a class of projects for the roadsides called Clean Energy and Connectivity Projects. And they gave the same priority and importance to clean energy and connectivity projects that they give to the transportation use. Mm. And I'm just going to boil that down. So we've always been most concerned about space to add another lane. Right. Um, I need to add another lane one right. day. So there is something now that is equally as important 
for that space, not just adding capacity or adding another lane, but adding solar panels and digging in grid infrastructure and digging in fiber for connectivity. Hmm. Because all of that opens up the opportunity for us to enhance and expand the grid for clean energy and deep decarbonization, which support the decarbonization of transportation. And the fiber, the fiber helps to address digital poverty, mm -hmm. the digital divide, especially in rural and remote areas, because right. you can build um, fixed wireless broadband off of that fiber backbone or that fiber spine. Right. And also, you need fiber and you need connected vehicle systems to support platooning, to support connected and autonomous vehicles. Mm -hmm. We can't have platooning trucks. We can't have level four or level five autonomy on our interstate and highway system if we don't have connectivity. And so by digging in fiber and energy transmission and building solar in ground-mounted arrays, you start to build what looks a lot like a southern layer cake. Mm. You know, the kind you get in Metter, Georgia, where right. they've made 12 layers, not three, right. but 12 layers, and right. they've packed in more icing so that it's more delicious. Right. Well, that's what the cross-section of the right-of-way looks like. You start to imagine the opportunities to add value just like icing on the surface of the roadway of the right-of-way itself going underground and in the future the right-of-way will also be used by air taxis hmm. which is how we started this right. conversation with joby being awarded the first commercial permit for air taxi service by the faa so air taxis are going to need to fly the concrete compass which is the interstate and highway system, and they're gonna need to do so not over traffic, but aside, alongside traffic. And so the right-of-way will have that third dimension of value as well. Um, a few months ago, I had uh, my friend on for the third or fourth time. His name is Dean Bubbly, and Dean's a <clears throat> telecom guru out of the UK. And we were talking about the recent infrastructure bill Fiber in particular, I wrote an article um, a couple years ago about uh, fiber to rural areas. There's, there's, on the one hand, there's all this talk about autonomy, autonomous vehicles, robotics for America's farms. And we said, man, that's great, but there's no connectivity. Co-ops are trying to figure out how do we do this, but there's you know, they, they started talking about 5G and some of these Wi-Fi things, Wi-Fi um, solutions. And Dean, who knows this space, like, man, I'm, I'm a big fan of 5G and Wi-Fi, but it can't get there. It's got to connect to fiber at some point. Um, and, and so how do we do that? And so we were talking about in this latest conversation about the, the hope is, and then another guy, Doug Boney, who's a, a author, a, a editor of Satellite IT Bridge, a, a magazine in the low earth orbit sort of satellite and connectivity space. Also very excited about the potential of our Congress finally agreeing on something, which is how we think the low hanging fruit is to get fiber to these rural areas. We didn't talk about right of way, but it was, if we can do this so that we can have then stem off of this connectivity, whether it's Wi-Fi or fiber or whatever, it so opens up opportunity, economic opportunity for our country and efficiency and automation. And um, one of the things I, I've talked to somebody about recently, we had Martin Ford on here talking in a, almost a scary way, the, 
disruption of AI and machines to job force. He said, yes, that's true. It's absolutely going to happen on the one hand and these things. But the other thing that happens is if we extend connectivity, we give opportunity for boutique and cottage industry and all these other industries that were at the heart of the initial hundred and something years of America. And so that you can make something in your place and distribute it digitally, if not um, through a automated system or a whatever, in so much efficiency. There's so many opportunities out there, but it doesn't work if we're not connected. And here's the other scary part of that, he said. Um, a lot of the world is moving towards this connectivity much faster than we are, which means from an economic and a business perspective, their centers of industry will have a competitive advantage over us, not for the usual sounding the alarm of they, they're ignoring human rights or whatever. They're just going to be wildly more efficient, um, even our allies, because they're, they are embracing how do, we, how do we use our infrastructure to distribute like this um, and we need to get on board with that in the States. And so this sounds like this, the right-of-way idea is one that lends itself beautifully to that. It does lend itself beautifully. And I think sometimes the vision, it is too, it's too good to believe. People sure. are like, that'll never happen. Right. To challenge that way of thinking, I would ask, which of the technologies we've talked about is not readily available and accepted in the United States? We're building solar faster than we're building any other energy generation resource mm-hmm. and infrastructure. So solar is like, you know, past the, past the mashed potatoes. Right. Right? Right. Okay, so is it fiber? No, that's your business. Right. You know fiber. Again, past the mashed potatoes. Right. Is it transmission? Are we not sure what energy grid infrastructure and technology looks like? No. Mm -hmm. All of this stuff is at our fingertips, ready to be deployed. The land use issues are what vexes us. Mm. We don't build new energy distribution and transmission lines because we don't have the land. Mm. We have to take the land. And then the communities go to court because of the health impacts That's why we haven't expanded the grid in the last quarter of a century. What about with fiber? Mm. How do we get fiber out to all these communities? What does that infrastructure outlay look like? What's the land use solution? What's the strategy for getting it there? Um, You know, the public's land is the right of way. My Mm -hmm. friend Amal Nayak calls it the solution hiding in plain sight. We've ceased to see all of that land that the public holds. And that really is waiting to be properly stewarded. Mm. Um, I love state transportation agencies. However, they have held the right of way close, like mm-hmm. Gollum and the Ring. Right. The precious. The precious, yeah, my precious. Because right. I might need to add another lane. Right. We're probably not going to be in an era of capacity expansion because of what's happening in transportation. Right. Right? Right. With autonomous vehicle technology development and with air taxis, 
these technologies will take a while to develop and to become scaled and accepted. Mm -hmm. But that's the future. Mm -hmm. We all agree that's the future. Mm -hmm. Even the bureaucrats agree that's right. the future. So capacity, adding capacity and expanding and adding a lane is not really what the right-of-way is destined for. Mm. The right-of-way is destined to be utilized for the public's needs. And what does the public need right now? The public needs clean energy distributed efficiently across the country from where it's generated to where it's used. And the public needs connectivity. Yeah. And we've got the land to be utilized for those purposes without going to court. Right. And it feels like so much of it, Allie, even if you say, you know what, let's just take a cautionary approach to it. There's so much of this right away that we can, let's not commit 100% of it. Let's start, what's the next 10% that's very low probability that we're going to add another lane? And when we're done with that, let's evaluate again. What's the next 10%? Well, let's move forward. And if we miss something, then we'll correct it. You know, we went too far or we didn't do enough or whatever. You know, so often I just feel like um, we, we, we strive for perfection instead of just doing incremental. Mm -hmm. And then let's, then let's reevaluate what, what innovation has happened in the last three years or the last 18 months from the time we started this, that now we can do something better. We can do something more concentrated. We can, oh, look, we've shifted traffic pattern or whatever it is. Um, instead, we just sit there and we hoard I see it in my house, my personal experience for myself and my family. You know what? Let's not toss that because um, my wife and I constantly have this battle. She grew up in a mutt, one of eight kids, dad enlisted military, mom Japanese, stayed at home, and you threw nothing away. And we are paying the price for that now. I'm like, baby, we got to... I promise you, John Repulsive is not going to come back in style. We do not need those clothes, except for Halloween. But it is a, um, you know, to, to give us a break, there's a psychological thing there. But I, I tend to be the logical, data-driven person. And even if um, I don't buy off on 100% of doing it the entire corridor, I know we can identify significant stretches of this corridor that we can get started on mm -hmm. that is a better use than mowing and dead deer and garbage collection. Right. And I mean, you've mentioned global competitiveness. So I don't ever believe that what another country <clears throat> does should dictate what we do. Comma, however, comma. Right. Um, China's already locked down the supply chain for electric vehicles. They're deploying autonomous vehicles. They're deploying connected systems in their cities. So smart city systems and connected road systems. Right. We are far behind. Right. And we have to be able to deploy and utilize if we are also going to capture the supply chain. Right. There is no example where a country dominates in the supply chain but does not have domestic utilization of same. Right. So we have to figure out how we are going to um, pick up these tools and use them. Mm -hmm. And it is going to create social and cultural shifts. And 
unfortunately, the cultural and social shifts are happening faster than ever before. And we've seen that since the advent of computers and then supercomputers. And I think Al Gore says he created the mm -hmm. Internet, sure. whatever that story what, right? is. Um, you know, we're now a part of a global economy and we're in a different kind of arms race. Right. And it's an arms race around technology and connectivity and how we manage data into meaning and how that drives more efficiencies and safety in our lives, yeah. including transportation. And so um, I don't want China to tell us what to do, but I do think if we want to be globally competitive over the next century, these are things that we have to do. We have to adapt and we have to use and we have to produce and supply. Right. And it has to be done domestically. So there's that piece of this. Um, there's also just you know the simple fact that um, we are going to continue to use more energy. We are going to continue to use more land. And there's throwaway land, right, that we have that nobody wants. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants responsibility over the right of way. Right. We don't want to farm on it. We don't want to live on it. We right. don't want to recreate on it. Right. It's throwaway land. We've stopped seeing it. Right. And so that land then becomes part of um, a security and resiliency opportunity for this country. So I want you to think about being in Texas in February last year. Mm. I have lots of family two there. Two weeks. Yeah. I want you to think about being in Oregon last year with the fires. Mm -hmm. Oregon went dark. Mm. I want you to think about being in New Orleans for the last 10 years. Every other year, that city goes dark mm -hmm. as Cat 5 hurricanes rip through. Mm -hmm. And so what we're not great at is helping our neighbor's neighbor when mm -hmm. it comes to energy crisis, because this country is made up of five energy grids and they're not interconnected. Mm -hmm. These are balkanized, balkanized energy systems. And so we know how to connect them. Um, the National Renewable Energy Lab, NREL, in 2008 published what's called the SEAM study, and they connected the five grids, the five energy grids in the country, they connected them at the seams, which is why it's called the SEAM study. Mm. And simply by building new transmission and distribution that connects the country through those seams projects, well, we then have a national grid or a macro grid where all of our regional grids are connected and we can help our neighbor's neighbor. Georgia could help Texas. Mm -hmm. Texas could help Oregon. Mm -hmm. We could all help New Orleans, mm -hmm. right? I mean, these are the opportunities. Maybe we don't want to help California when right. they have a brownout in the right. summer because we're tired of them preaching at us, right. but we could help California. Right. And more importantly, the wind resources generated with offshore wind projects, the wind resources generated in the middle of the country in the Western states. Right. The solar resources generated along the southeast and the southwest can be shared to the demand centers, to the Chicago's, the New York's, the L.A., the San Francisco's, the Seattle's, the Atlanta's. We can share those energy resources in remote areas where they're generated in the urban and dense areas where the demand is the highest. And we can do that as a national endeavor and not keeping these resources in a balkanized way for our own region or for our own state. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the future where we need to go for security and for resiliency. But the knowledge of where you need to go is only part of the process. And mm -hmm. we have to now do the day in and the day out work of creating the projects, approving the permits, 
and creating the land use solution. And we think that the interstate roadside is the land use solution. I'm not telling you that we can solve the permitting issues. Right. Right. I'm not telling you that we can solve the interconnection queues with right. the regional transmission operators. Right. And I'm going to start using acronyms, and I don't right. want to do that. But right. you know, we can solve the land use issue tomorrow. Right. So can Washington solve the permitting issue? Right. Can the grid operator serve the, the queue and congestion issues? Because yeah. we can solve the land use issue with DOTs and the right-of-way. Yeah. So I think we start on the things that we can solve. And we, you can um, uh, not just can solve, but that there is overwhelming evidence the technology exists. It feels like it's more of an education and persuade. The interconnect, boy, I suppose it depends on who you're talking to. I did... Once here, uh, meaning this Texas, there, there's a, um, and I have a lot of love for Texas. I've lived in Texas off and on in my life, California, a number of places. But there is a, my experience with people there, you know, this is our grid, right? This is, they don't think of it as a national grid. This is our grid. For, for good or ill, this is, this is our grid. And to me, it seems like you could, you could have both. You know, you could, you could create up, you could create, and I'm going to be oversimplification, oversimplification, oversimplify this. You can create gateways that are open or closed. It's like a lock system. You can, you can choose to open or close the locks. And so if you want to keep them in a state of um, locked or unshared, it's, it's it, you know, that, okay, that's, I suppose, I'm a big states rights guy, but why wouldn't we want to build the opportunity that you could open, should you choose, and share why on earth, as much as we Texans love to tease their Oklahoma neighbors or their Arkansas neighbors or whoever, they probably would, they would never open to Louisiana. That's not going to happen. But, but in New Mexico. But in all seriousness, they, um, they're they wonderfully generous people. And it's my experience is we run into people all around the country. And um, why wouldn't we want to... Uh, lean in and help California on occasion that has this aging sued a million times infrastructure that is exploding and catching things on fire. Cause these are really people's lives. It's not some government. These are our co-citizens. I, I think that most human, most Americans would lean into that. Should it, it be available. But I had professor um, Donald Sadaway in here um, a year or two ago, a really interesting guy talking about grid level storage. You have to have grid level Safe, inexpensive, locally sourced storage, if you're going to have green energy. Um, and he's got a mechanism in a way that he believes. So I, fascinating conversation. And later at the end of the show, um, I believe we recorded this part. I asked him, what do you think is a really interesting innovation that you believe will happen? And he gave me the positive and the negative of this idea, which was, he said, I think probably not in my lifetime. But in the next 50 years, we will perfect the ability to transmit energy at almost no loss, probably the ability to do it across the country. It's, there's huge value in doing that. What I'm not sure we'll be able to overcome is our, for lack of a bit, my word, prejudices or our, our obstacles. I don't know if I want your electrons running on my grid. Well, I don't know if I want your grid and my electron, you know, my peanut butter and your chocolate. Like, and that seems so counterintuitive to me on the one hand. Why would we not? 
why is a pluralistic society? I love America. I love being part of America. I love our uniqueness. I love visiting other parts of the world. And I love that esprit de corps. But if I think it needs to be Team America, not red, blue, purple, or whatever, Team America, which is to say that we can at the macro, why would we not want cheap, easy, wildly sourced, if wind doesn't work good here, but solar does, or whatever it is, for, for, while we're on this journey, that's the other thing he said was, look, renewables are future. Today, I don't want to run out and shut down all coal today, because the economic impact is this. But I don't want to keep inventing new coal. I want to spend our innovation in those next generation things. But there's a life cycle that makes logical economic sense as we, we do these things. I've just felt that such a pragmatic, practical, well-reasoned response. One of the things that I've loved listening to you is, uh, and even our private off-camera conversations, <clears throat> on how do we not, uh, with passion... Bring our, what we believe are facts, to the conversation and hash it out. As iron sharpens iron, let's hash it out. And what I passionately believe may not stand up to scrutiny. Yours may not stand up to scrutiny, but that's okay. I can take it. I may not particularly like it day one. I may not be a hero day one. But if the data is really there and it really is for human flourishing, I will end up there or some degree there. Um, but anyway, I just remember his, his. I wouldn't call it pessimism, but his, um, his. He felt like the obstacle wasn't the technology and learning to transmit electricity in ways we can't even imagine today. But it's going to be so vibrant and such a great opportunity for us as Americans and global citizens. But these tribal resistances, and he's not anti-tribes. There are some things we're going to be tribal about, and that's okay. This kind of grid macro level stuff should not be one of them. We're not that way with how we operate on a road. Why would we be that way? Or how we operate uh, air traffic or any of these other things. Why would we be that way in this? Mm-hmm. I mean, this is also the Wheaties that you're supposed to eat every day, right? right? And it's not bright, shiny objects, and it's not you know the next new thing. And I think part of our role as um, you know, speaking from a generation Xer, mm-hmm is to not forget the daily work. We don't chase bright, shiny objects. Some people have said that the Ray is an idea factory, and we might be an idea factory, Mm -hmm. but I'm hoping that we're the ideas that are practical, no regrets, Mm -hmm. and that do the daily. We gotta do the daily work. And Mm -hmm. so I'm gonna gonna actually explain what I'm saying in energy. Oh, yeah, we all want to go solar, wind. Right. Oh, it's not base load, then give me battery storage at scale, decarbonize. Right. You know, all all the young people out there who are really pushing the envelope, and I understand the Mm -hmm. panic. I understand why. Mm -hmm. But we haven't done the daily work of the grid. Mm. Um, You have thousands of projects that are paralyzed, that cannot interconnect to the grid because the grid is congested. It has no capacity. Mm. So like we're about to run straight into a lemmings situation where we've got hundreds, if not thousands of renewable energy projects planned, but we can't get them connected to the grid because we haven't done the daily. Mm. What's the daily work? 
What's the work that you do every day? Whatever it is, prayer, mm-hmm. meditation, Wheaties, mm-hmm. 20 minutes of exercise, right. building capacity on the grid. That's the daily. What do you think the hang-up there is? Uh, I think we chase bright, bright and shiny objects. I think we love to fund technology. I think we love to fund R&D. In mm-hmm. fact, I know it. Mm-hmm. I know that's what we're chasing. We're chasing the golden rings. We're chasing fame. We're chasing unicorns. And we're forgetting to do the daily. Mm. And the grid is part of the daily. And so we've got to remember those projects are just as important as whatever is coming next. Mm. And it's the same thing, uh, you know, as it relates to the energy mix. Why would you retire a coal plant if it's not time to retire it yet? Why wouldn't you get all of the useful life out of that asset? Mm -hmm. Why would we say no to anything like Mm -hmm. nuclear? Mm -hmm. Nuclear is good baseload. Mm -hmm. And I'm not here. I'm speaking personally about how I feel about the energy mix. And and that's just my personal belief. As it relates to the ray, you can't put a nuke plant on the roadsides. So I don't feel like we're picking winners and losers. We're just picking what coexists on the roadside, and that happens to be ground-mounted solar, and so we're going big on that. But, I mean, I think we have to be practical. We have to set up no-regret solutions that are detached from judgment. And that's what I think all of these are, right? Rubber-modified asphalt, there's no reason why you wouldn't upcycle scrap tire rubber into rubber roads. If anyone can think of a reason, let me know. I didn't even mention the fact that you can pave roads that handle stormwater to reduce standing water and hydroplaning and the splashback and the rooster tail, right? There are clear safety benefits to paving with rubber because of what it unlocks in your ability to design safer roads, especially for flash floods. So I've just taken a dark alleyway back into flash flooding, but still so eminently practical, no regrets. You're going to make your money back tenfold with rubber roads, right? We just have to change that hardened thinking around procurement. Well, we can do that. Come on. We can change from low bid to life cycle cost analysis. Same thing with connected vehicles and data streams. It opens up platooning. It opens up autonomous operation. It opens up situational awareness and meaningful alerts straight into your car without you having to look at your cell phone, without you having to be distracted from your your driving, without you having to wonder if the information is correct or not, right? Mm -hmm. It delivers all of those benefits. And really, the only concern is that we're surveilling you to see how often you go to the frisky whiskey. Give me a break. We can solve those issues around the public trust in this technology. We can solve issues around procurement. And as it relates to the roadside, it's the land use solution that is just waiting to be scaled. And so, you know, how do we get state DOTs to open up the right-of-way? That's the magic question. And um, the feds aren't standing in the way anymore. The feds have the green light go, mm. right? Run, dog, run. Right. So, you know, it's really part of this is, again, hand-holding with uh, transportation agencies. This is a whole new world for them, and the mm. disruption is fierce, and it's coming on fast. And the other part of this is just getting the public support, mm-hmm. right? We have the land. Mm. We have the solutions, um, this is all very reasonable. These are no regrets. Mm-hmm. So let's start asking for it. Do do they, um, without picking on or singling out any particular states other than positively, is do, do you find that the reaction, I've got to believe this starts at, at least in some way at the governor's office or some of the senior legislatures in the state, are they... 
Are some states friendlier or have you found a number of partners that are saying, well, I'm, I'm really listening to what you're saying. How can I help you have a real conversation? Because let's just, let's just presume that a Department of Transportation official in any particular state is sincere. They're sincere about their state, but they are not pro-rubber road for whatever their experience in the past has been or any of these other things. There's some resistance there. And, and you want to, you want a conversation facilitated so that you guys can, ha- whether it's you specifically, the Ray or some other organization that's also advocating for something like this, are some governments, um, state governments more amenable to having that conversation than others? Well, or is that too complicated of a question? With the federal funding, um, of the bipartisan infrastructure law, this is a, a historic moment for infrastructure projects, for new programs, for enormous funding streams. We're Mm -hmm. not even talking about hundreds of millions anymore. We're talking about billions of dollars. And so, you know, that is, um, that's, that's really, um, kind of creating distortions. Um, and I think for the better, mm-hmm. right? Because these are major carrots, right? right? And so instead of a stick approach, right. we're, in a, we're in a time of carrots right, right now. And so there are states that are beginning to consider a lot of different projects and different approaches and um, opportunities that they never would have prioritized before because there's a giant carrot out there. So I would say the marketplace is a little distorted by the funding opportunity right now and to the better mm-hmm. um, in terms of innovation and technology. Um, There's also just the cultural shift that we have made in the last few years, and it's not just related to the bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, I think that the data sets out there since COVID about digital poverty and the digital divide have made um, advocates for broadband and fiber and connectivity. Um, of course, Ford getting into the electric vehicle game with the F-150 Lightning has created um, enormous support in communities, rural and urban, for electrification. There are tons of new models that are hitting the market, not right. just you know Elon Musk and the right. Tesla, or not just the um, you know the Nissan spaceships. Mm-hmm. So there's a there's a lot of of um, of cultural shift that is going on um, regarding, you know, how communities feel about challenges and opportunities, about the daunting task ahead of us and the tools in the toolbox to meet the moment. So, you know, I think that um, what we find at the Ray is um, that we need to make no assumptions about audiences, Mm. that we need to approach every conversation with a transportation agency, um, understanding what they want to solve or what they want to capture, right? So what opportunity or what value do you want to capture or what's what's your pain point mm-hmm. and how can we help solve it? Mm-hmm. And that's the equalizer because it doesn't matter if you're from the left coast or from a flyover state. Right. You've got pain points and you've got hopes and dreams. Right. And so it's a question of... Um, Practically speaking, how can we address what's going on on the ground without making assumptions about, you know, whether or not you might be an open, open-minded and willing partner in a project? Right. Well, Ali, I feel like I have 
asked some of my questions on my sheets, but it's been a fantastic conversation. What haven't we touched on? I know we're pretty much at the ragged edge of time that we should have, or what should we say for our next conversation? Um, I do think that we should have a conversation about autonomous vehicles yeah. one day soon, um, because I do think that there's a lot of autonomy that's already crept its way into vehicles that aren't called autonomous. They right. just have these really cool driver assist systems. And I think that what's coming around the bend, um, you know, maybe it's not going to show up as a self-driving vehicle, you know, operating as mobility as a service tomorrow. Right. But I do think that we're going to see faster and more aggressive autonomy in heavy-duty vehicles mm -hmm. and our heavy-duty trucks mm -hmm. and our um, and our cargo vans. And so mm -hmm. I want to have that conversation because that to. opens up a lot of really cool opportunities for safety and efficiency, but it also opens up that conversation around the workforce yeah. and, um, and around global competitiveness. So there's a lot to unpack there, probably not. Yeah probably not a closer for this show. And yeah. I have a special request that this show be called No Regrets. No Regrets. You got it. <laughs> I love it. We absolutely can do that. I love the autonomous conversation. Um, let's do that this fall. If you're available, we'll reach out and see if we can do that. It is, I have come to fully embrace the idea of autonomous, whether they are commercial vehicles or even an individual vehicle. I could not imagine this in my for myself 30 years ago. No way. Probably more resistant to that than electric vehicles. Now I want an electric autonomous truck, if it's at all possible. That's what I would love to have. Yeah. But partly through your program and listening to things that you've been part of and other folks, it's, it's always these unintended consequences. And we say that as if it's a dirty thing, and therefore we shouldn't innovate, which I think is absolutely wrong. We learned today about the tire consequence mm -hmm. and... Um, so let's not stop EV. Let's figure out how we solve and how we redeploy. We've talked a lot about that today, but there's so many things related to batteries. There's so many things related to rare earth materials and, and the, 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 you know, not that we're going to go into geopolitics, but the pressure on protecting those resources around the globe. And they are like petroleum finite resources, like on and on and on. There's so many things. When I think of autonomous, I also usually think connect them with EV, but that's not necessarily true. They can be different things. And I usually think about four-wheel vehicles, not necessarily flying, or all of these things. And so there's there's just so much, I think, interesting there. But I think that it can so change in a profoundly beneficial way our lives when you just start diving into your point about the 16% uh, increase in fatalities. And you just think, Wait a minute. How how is it that we're doing this? Because we're we're combining the distractiveness of technology with this sort of this old school reptile brain and things we've done since the Model T, and they don't work well together. No. And we're not anyway. So um, I think it's a it would in and of itself it'd be a standalone conversation. I think it'd be a lot of fun to have. Yeah, that sounds awesome. And there are opportunities <clears throat> for recycling batteries, um, electric vehicles. Here's the did you did you know segment okay. of our podcast. So did you know that when an electric vehicle has worn out a battery, right? The battery is no longer appropriate for the electric vehicle. Did you know that that battery still has 80% energy, 
80% energized. So it's not that we need to recycle batteries to their rare earth metals, Mm -hmm. minerals, and materials Mm -hmm. when they're done with your AV, EV Mm -hmm. truck. Mm -hmm. It is that they have another life to live first. Right. So they need to go and live with other batteries and energy storage for the grid. Right. And then, so once they've gone to 20% usage, mm-hmm. and then they've gone to the grid, and they've got the 80%, and they get down to that usage, then they're ready for recycling of the minerals and the metals and the rare earth materials into a new battery. Right. So, you know, this is... Um, creative thinking at its finest because we can't just go from point A to point B. We have to, you know, imagine this as a life cycle for a battery and all of the opportunities. And the stark reality for the United States is that we don't have access to the natural raw resources to power production of batteries to meet the demand. In fact, um, recently Cox Automotive shared that the United States has supply for the rare earth and the raw materials for only 60 to meet only 60 percent of the demand so we're just barely halfway able to supply based on new materials it's an imperative that we recycle and the recycling happens after the second life right similar with tires Right. right the tires live their first life on the vehicle the second life on the road and then actually the road can be recycled into new road it's called wrap or recycled asphalt pavement and Mm -hmm. you can wrap up to 100 percent in a new road right so these are the you know these this is this is the story right this is what we get to tell so that we do, right. so that we become more efficient, right. so that we are more competitive and also have a quality of life that we want and deserve in this country. Right. All of those needs can be met, mm. but we have to be able to think in systems right. and systems of systems, which right. is, I know that that's so wonky, but there are opportunities at at the level, at the micro and the macro level, and we have to start thinking that way in transportation. Right. Um, it's like our friend Blake in Idaho, he said, in a moment of frustration, you know, I've been building roads and bridges my entire career. I've done a good job. I've built a right. good road. I've built a good bridge. Right. I've done it my whole career. Right. And now you want me to fill in the blank. Now you want me to know about tires. Right. Now you want me to know about solar panels. Now you want me to start digging in fiber. Mm. Now you want me to dig in transmission lines. Now you want me to think about air taxis. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. Because you know what the scary consequences if we don't do that? We, this is Dave McCall's opinion. I'm not the Ray or Ali or QTSs. Historically, as human beings, when our population or our government feels like our population says this part of our life we need to have but we don't have the resource for or our government says we need this strategic material by I don't mean necessarily the United States although we would be one of those but throughout all of human history what do we do when we don't have it but we say we need it or we want it we go to war mm-hmm. always it's happening right now in the world it happened in World War II it has happened throughout all of human history we go to war and so without being too obnoxious about it, why would we not do, for all the altruistic 
reasons and all the national defense reasons, all of these reasons, kind of like you were talking about rubber roads in the very beginning of this, all of these reasons why we should, um, why wouldn't we be wise, not just in what we're consuming and how we're consuming it, but what's this life cycle? How do we innovate systems of systems? Um, Because if we don't, it's not just that we lose a competitive advantage. This is the way nations work. And it is, you know, believe it or not, war is not really good for business. It is certainly not good for people. Some businesses will profit from war. But, but most involved will not, and certainly the people and their babies will not. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm ex-military, very pro-first responder and national defense or whatever. But, you know, I just think that's the nature of the world. And um, we are, to your point earlier, there have been other nations that have been out there working to procure, looking way, they're not launching aircraft carriers looking 50 years down the road, 30 years down the road, how do we protect global assets, pr- procure them for ourselves? Yeah. I learned uh, in my Spanish class, I went to, uh, finally went to college in my 40s, I was taking uh, Spanish, and my teacher said, what do you think the fastest growing language on earth is? Do you know what he told me? It's got to be Chinese, Mandarin. It's not. I, it? That was my guess. It's Spanish. Mm-hmm. Do you know why it's Spanish? Why? Because so many of these resources are in countries that speak Spanish, and the Chinese have bought those resources, and they're teaching their people Spanish. And this is from my Puerto Rican professor, who has spent a lot of time in South and Central America. And um, I have uh, friends that are from Guatemala and from other parts of uh, Central America, but other friends from South America. And the scary part is that many of these... um, resources that get bought up and protected, they start off with local managers and then they remove the local managers and it's just, you know, the national state uh, people. And that's not to pick on the country. These are just realities that are going on in the world. And strategies, strategies, right? And why, I mean, Great Britain has done it. Spain has done it. The United States has done it. And for periods of time, we dominated the socioeconomic policies of the world. If we don't want that to happen to us, if we want to be wise about how we're um, how we're imagining the future, we need to grow up and face the reality of some of this. We're still, I think, the freest, most innovative place on earth with plenty of hairy problems. I'm not glossing over that, but I gotta believe that even even a um, semi-dysfunctional world that, you know, here in the States, that we have such a great opportunity ahead of us if we would just embrace it Mm -hmm. and be wise. Um, But to not be wise, you know, there's a, there's a, um, there's a phrase, I don't know if it's the Bible or wherever, but it was this, in the story, the, the, at the end of the day, the, the deity or the whatever said, you get the king you deserve, which is to say the people had been lazy and obnoxious and not paying attention, and I'm including me in this scenario. And if we don't, at some point, the wolf does show up, mm-hmm. and you get the king or you get the society that you allowed to happen, mm-hmm. and we need to be aware of it, I think. Yeah, and warfare is modernized as well. 
So warfare is now cyber warfare, <clears throat> which is really bad for business. Yeah. And warfare is now nuclear weapons, right. which is decimating. Right. So the idea that warfare is um, an economic boon because we are going to pump out all this artillery and you know we're right. all going to get on the steel line is just that's not the way that warfare is operated anymore. Right. Completely agree. All right. Well, we are going to end it there. Allie Kelly from The Ray, thank you very much. Now, if people want to learn more about you and The Ray, how do they do that? Well, we have a website. Okay. So theray.org. Because okay. remember, we're a charity organization. Yeah. So it's O-R-G. Okay. And, um, I mean, you can contact me over the website. You can find just about anything that we've talked about today on the website. Um, and plenty of videos if folks are interested in learning more. Okay. And then I plan to be back on this podcast. That's right. This fall, Autonomous Vehicles. Thank you very much for coming in this week. I appreciate it. Thank you. This has been delightful, and I have no regrets. I have no regrets. I love it. Well, hopefully you've enjoyed the show and the conversation. Please like, share, su subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. See you, everybody.